Welcome to the Faith and Grief Podcast, where we explore the intersection of faith and grief. We hope the stories and interviews you hear provide some comfort and hope on your grief journey. Faith and Grief is a nonprofit that provides grief support programs across the country, in person and online. Learn more at faithandgrief.org. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with author Christian Brady about his book, Beautiful and Terrible Things. Christian is a professor of ancient Hebrew and Jewish literature and the inaugural dean of the Lewis Honor College at the University of Kentucky. He is also a priest in the Episcopal Church. On New Year's Eve 2012, his son Mac, who was just two weeks shy of his ninth birthday, died unexpectedly from a blood infection. In the time since, he and his family have been using writing as an outlet for their own grief and as a way to help others who are also grieving. My first question uh, today is, how are you doing really? Um, doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's um, It has been a, a challenging year for everybody, of mm-hmm. course, with, with COVID. Um, things personally have seemed to sort of snow, snowball uh, a, a good bit. Um, uh, I was on September one, I was asked to take over as interim Dean of the college of arts and sciences at the university of Kentucky, which is uh, our largest college. Um, and it was very abrupt. And, um, so I've, I've had to, uh, help shepherd folks, uh, through this. So again, in a way, my experience and research and, and work in grief, uh, although many of the faculty and staff wouldn't realize that this is what it is, but mm-hmm. I'm working to try and help them through that. Um, my 101 and 10 month old uh, grandmother passed away a week ago Sunday, um, which obviously doesn't have quite the same impact as uh, uh, as someone younger, like a child or what have you. But, um, but it is having its reverberations and ramifications through our family. Mm-hmm. And, and then we're just living in a very different world um, as a faculty member at a university and administrator. Um, we're trying our best to deliver for our students the in-person experience while also protecting them and our faculty. And so balancing uh, the course offerings, um, maintaining their safety, um, maintaining the anxiety and the stress that comes with it. I right. mean, this are you know, mitigating, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, so it's, um, it, there's, there's a lot going on, but by and large, I, I, I do personally feel, feel quite good. And, um, but also recognizing there are times that you need to, to take a break. I mentioned my wife yesterday, I canceled something yesterday afternoon and just took the time off. And I said, you know, if my calendar had been clear, I don't think I would have felt the same kind of freedom. So sometimes it's therapeutic to cancel something else. Right. To just have time for yourself. So so hanging in there. How about you? How are you doing through this? Um, very similarly, um, our programs, uh, we consider ourselves a ministry of presence. So all our programs mm-hmm. until six, seven months ago were in person. You know, we were meeting mm-hmm. uh, monthly with support gatherings and workshops and retreats. And so we've moved everything online. So that was a really quick uh, shift. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's been sort of uh, both things. There's been high levels of stress, high levels of, of ambiguity and, you know, what's next. Um, and at the same time, uh, I've had time to do things that I normally wouldn't have time for, um, which, of course, I think has made most of us sort of reevaluate um, all that extra mm-hmm. stuff that we were doing. Is it necessary? 
Is it soul filling? Yeah. Um, not fulfilling, mm-hmm. but soul filling. You know, is it something that can, uh, you know, uh, comfort us and and be a, a tool or or an activity that's mm-hmm. good for us? Um, so yeah, it's been both. Uh, it feels like a series of Mondays, as I say a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and both very fast with no, week- with no weekends. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm sure in your your role, it's felt like there has hasn't been a weekend in a really long time. I can't yeah, imagine yeah. Uh, kind of walking into a school year, and particularly this school year, um, and managing yeah. all of that. So I'm glad you're taking some time for yourself yeah. and recognizing the need for that. Thank you. Yeah. And it's been good. And, and this week, um, being in Pennsylvania with my wife to care of some things at the Pennsylvania house, I was able to watch. Um, our son's buddies, who are now juniors in high school, play in the high school soccer team, uh, win uh, two different games. And that's been really, um, really great. But it has also been tinged, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with with sadness, recognizing that Mac would be 16. He's not here. Uh, we did some cleaning up of his room as we were getting new carpeting put down. And so it's it's been an emotional time and it's just a, a reminder that you don't get a loss. Uh, you, you learn to accommodate, you learn to walk with it, but then there are times when it, when it comes. And, and that is much of what I'm trying to, I find myself just in everyday conversation and, and even in meetings like with chairs of the departments mm-hmm. and, and staff to help folks recognize, hey, you're going to have all sorts of feelings and they're all legitimate and they're fine. I, I try to do it. I, don't, I try not to be hokey. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's asking for their dean to be a, a therapist, right? You know, but at the same time, it does seem to to mean a lot to folks when they've got a boss who just recognizes that, um, yeah, the world is in a, in a crazy place, and and you personally may be feeling it very poignantly. And on the other hand, you may not be feeling anything. And if and if that's a high, if you're doing really well, and you're loving the circumstances, don't start carrying guilt around for that either. Just be thankful and be grateful and express that in gratitude. So, exactly. Well, you mentioned Mac. Um, yeah. In reading um, "Beautiful and Terrible Things," which I love that title. Um, it it was really what brought me uh, that and Lindsay is how uh, I got mm-hmm. introduced to your work. And I thought, oh, this sounds so interesting. And I was so glad the timing that the book had come out so that we could talk. Um, Tell me a little bit about Mac. So Mac, um, uh, Mac was just great. He was always uh, very smiley, um, very silly and goofy. Um, born uh, in January of 2004. Uh, and uh, our our first child had been an emergency C-section. So, so Mac's delivery was planned. So we we went down to New Orleans the night before, stayed in the, the bishop's little guest house. We went out to a, a steakhouse. Uh, our daughter, who's now almost 23, still remembers, you know, the, the chopping at the table and the, and the onion volcano. <laughs> uh, and, and he and mom were both very healthy. And, and in fact, his whole life was one of, of health and energy and vitality. For whatever reasons, when he was about four years old, um, decided he wanted to play soccer and just took to it. And shortly thereafter, decided he wanted to be a goalie, which in the soccer world, you actually usually don't uh, put kids into particular positions until they're about 12. Right. 
and that works for the rest of the field. Unlike most sports, the re- you know the skills are by and large the same, except for goal. And uh, Mac loved it and took it on, and he um, he just jumped right into it and was a very very good little goalie to the extent that um, a week or so after he died, uh, the United States Soccer League, which is sort of the, the second league in the country, sort of triple A ball for right, baseball right. fans. Um, they had an academy and they called us one, having heard about him out of um, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. to be the goalie for their U19. They, they obviously hadn't heard that he had passed away, but he was already nearly nine years old. He was that good. But soccer was a lot of, of who he was mm-hmm. as, as when you're a little boy, um, you know, you pick one particular thing. Legos, he absolutely loved Legos. But he was just always full of life. He, like his mother, he was much more of a morning person. I'd come up in the morning and come downstairs and he would already be like Elizabeth writes in one of her essays. How he, he has this little Lego headlamp and he'd be sitting more or less in the dark with his headlamp on at his little table, putting together a Lego creation. <laughs> so uh, just pure fun and vitality. And just to, to sort of continue the story on, it was just out of the blue. He woke up one morning with a fever. Uh, his mm. buddy, his best, best friend, John had had the fever the day before looked like it was just the flu. Doctors said, call us the next morning if he still has a fever. We did. They said, bring him in at 5 p.m. By then, he only turned out, uh, had about five more hours to live. It mm. turned out it was sepsis. We There were no mm. cuts, no wounds, no reason to suspect that anything more had, had occurred. Um, but it was a blood infection. And it, um, many physicians in talking with them have said it's like lighting a match in a, in a dry forest. You just can't stop it. There is actually... Um, about, uh, it's only 50% survival if they recognize that it's sepsis and you're already in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's like a 98% mortality rate when you're outside because it can look like so many other things and you just, you really have to hit it as soon as the fever sets in. And so we often have said in many ways we were blessed because we, we had all but 36 hours of, of, just full vitality with mm-hmm. Mac um, and just loved by his friends and teachers and his sister. Uh, and of course his mom and I uh, just loved him. Still do, of course. Yeah. Well, it, you can feel that um, as you read your book. Um, you can, uh, I feel like I know Mac pretty well from your book. Um, oh, so I'm glad. thank you for sharing so much of his story and him yeah. with us. And I feel like I know your family really well. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, what has it been like during this time um, as you've been grieving Mac as a family? What has that meant to you? What have you learned? Well, we're coming up on eight years and our daughter was, I guess, a sophomore in high school, I think, or freshman. I can't do math very well. Uh, that's why I didn't become a physician. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth and I, for whatever reasons, had a pretty strong instinct early on that not that we had to protect Izzy from the truth of our feelings or protect from the truth of the reality of the, the death of her brother, but that we needed to give her space to, to grieve in her way mm-hmm. and to do the things that she needed to do. And, um, and so as a family, that's been sort of a, a hallmark. One of the things we've tried to do is to acknowledge. And, and early on, it was, it was this uh, weird and wonderful grace that 
a day or a moment when I was just overwhelmed and bawling, Elizabeth would feel strong. Mm. And a time when she is bawling, I would feel strong. Now, maybe we're just responding to one another, but whatever it was, there, there have been very few moments when we both just collapse all at the same time. Um, and um, uh, they can each tell their own stories. Elizabeth, I will just say Izzy has just grown and is beautiful and, and so strong in, in her own right. Um, and Elizabeth is, is, is an author. She published really before me. Um, and um, But together we've walked through this. Now, not all of our extended family has responded as well. Uh, it's been a challenge. Uh, I mentioned in the book that my father, who passed away just as I was finishing this book, mm -hmm. dad never got over the death of Mac. Mm -hmm. And he also never sought any counseling or help with that. And um, so it's it's been a, a, you know, it's as varied as, as people are varied. But for us as a family, um, we're we're thankful to um, to thrive and and. Uh, be together but we always always miss mac and as we're now at a new stage my wife and i because our daughter is now in graduate school overseas um i'm in lexington kentucky and elizabeth can now her job is is entirely online um we're also thinking again yeah but but mac should be a senior in high school mm. and we we would never uproot him that doesn't mean we we won't do the things that we're doing now in the new world but you just think about um, those hallmarks every the, the, every now and then about uh, I see his buddies and how they are they are fast becoming young men mm -hmm. and it gets poignant. It does. Rambled a bit farther on the topic there, but that's what happens. No, that's okay though. We want to know about Mac um, because absolutely it, it um, what you experienced um, after his death and grieving. Um, how did that inspire you to write the book? So the, the book is interesting because it, in some ways I had begun writing this even before we had children in mm -hmm. the sense that um, it, it was not, I should say it was my, my graduate work and my research um, weren't intentionally on this area. Like many doctoral students, I ended up doing my, my uh, thesis as they call it at Oxford on, uh, on a subject because my advisor said, here, why don't you write on this? <laughs> um, and so it's a very niche thing, but the short of it is there's a biblical book called Lamentations, which are five poems lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem, 586, Babylonians destroyed it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And in particular, I was looking at how the rabbis, so these are uh, uh, the classical rabbis from the turn of the common era right. um, to about the eighth century CE or AD. And so I was looking at a particular Aramaic text called the Targum and how they interpreted the, the, the Book of Lamentations. And in particular, within Judaism of that time, it was the fact that the temple had been destroyed again by the Romans. They were uh, Jews were scattered throughout the ancient world. Uh, and, and of course, my research and reading went much more broadly into how other uh, how Jews and Christians have responded throughout history. Obviously, one of the most obvious being uh, the Holocaust and Jewish and Christian responses to the Holocaust. Uh, now, in the book, I talk about how one of my earliest memories is of learning that my mother might die. And so mm -hmm. being very young, whereas most children 
thankfully, um, in, in our Western world, don't have to confront this very early on, or if they do, it may be with an extremely old, uh, older or elderly parent or grandparent, I mean, relative that they may not be terribly close to. I saw that right away. So you would think that it was logical that my research might have gone that direction. This was just coincidence. Um, but because of these two strands, it meant that when Mac died, A, on the one hand, I was shocked and horrified that our son was gone, mm -hmm. but I wasn't surprised in the sense that I knew that this is what happens throughout the world, that children uh, and, and adults, but that people die um, for horrible, uh, uh, unfounded reasons, mm -hmm. it seems. I, I learned just yesterday that uh, a, a friend, uh, Acquaintance really from grad um, at 52 of a heart attack, just dropped dead earlier this week. Mm. Um, no signs, no symptoms, no, no uh, preconditions. But so I've grown up knowing this. And so there was a sense in which, you know, shock to the system and, and just grieving deeply and terribly, but understood that this was part of the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the ways I cope uh, with, with what I'm thinking and feeling is to write. And I've had this blog, targuman.org. I've had this 15 plus years now. Mm -hmm. I should really go back and remember exactly when I started it. So I've had it a really long time. And I just started writing short things. Of course, I announced it there and um, started sharing feelings. And people responded, which was wonderful. I mean, mostly responding and uh, loving and kindness. But, you know, you also then hear a lot of things. And here we're going to get a little theological, like... Um, God needed Mac. Uh, we may not know why, but God took Mac for a reason. Uh, he's an angel now. I think those are the three big ones that about 10 or 12 days after Mac died, I posted uh, an essay saying, first of all, thank you for the love. And I know you're saying all of this out of love mm -hmm. for us. But I think theologically they're wrong. And I just want to quickly address them because they're pretty common. Yeah. And so I went through that. And I even had one of my uh, oldest and best friend's wife got really upset with me because she saw me as rejecting his love and support for me. He's a Calvinist. Yes. And, you know, sort of that I'm being ungrateful. I'm like, no, no, I, I get where he's coming from. And I know that he believes deeply that God has ordained and so forth and so on, and that it brings y'all comfort. But I also think theologically, objectively, that it's incorrect. And I know that it hurts lots of people. So as I went through this process as somebody pretty resilient, because I had all this uh, armor and, and, and equipment, as it were, to respond, I also knew that many, many people didn't. And in, and in the book, I share a, a handful of stories of people I've since talked to, one couple in particular, that um, their story uh, was really startling to me where they had had a stillborn child. They themselves were incredibly well-trained theologically because they had been missionaries and, and so forth. Right. But their, their pastor, just a few months after their child died, came to them and said, we're concerned that you're still grieving. But their concern wasn't a, a pastoral concern that we want to continue to support mm -hmm. you and love you, which they did. I mean, I, I'm not questioning the sincerity of the pastor, but he said, God took your child for a reason and the fact that you're still grieving tells me that you don't have a deep enough and strong enough faith. Right. That that part of the book really spoke to me um, because I think sometimes it, with good intentions, as you said, um, 
we put a griever in a very strange place um, based on maybe one's theology or the, the applications that people come up with just because seeing someone else's pain is hard for them to recognize because it makes them think right. of their own. But tell me more about that because I think that area, um, I, I know it's a frustration for me uh, when mm-hmm. people put um, people's faith on trial a little bit, yeah. especially yeah. especially at a time of loss and grief. Yeah. Well, there are any number of ways that we could we could talk about this subject. I'll, I'll be a little bit critical on the front end, if that's all right. No, I, yeah. I think, uh, and partly because it's it's the background that I grew up in. Although I have to say it was a very supportive and and affirming uh, church that I grew up in and community, but it was related to a very Calvinist evangelical theology, which which I'm not rejecting out of hand per se. Um, but what happens is we, we, as humans, we have a desire to know. We, we want answers and we want boxes that we can put things in. We want to know this goes here, this goes there, that goes there. And that there's a, there's a shape and a reason for those boxes mm-hmm. to be where they are and what shape they are and design they are. And when we can't fit things in, we get very, very frustrated and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where systematic theology comes from, is it's trying to fit everything into boxes. The reality is if you take the Bible as a whole and you just read it through, it you can take one view, which is that it's incredibly inconsistent and therefore anything but holy and so forth. Or, um, you know, you go to this other extreme of oftentimes of, of trying to systematize and therefore saying, well, these these bits that don't seem to fit only don't fit because we don't yet understand the, the mind of God. But we have enough guidance to understand the mind of God on these other bits. And Mm so my view, even before this sort of loss theologically has been, no, this is the whole point of Canon. It is a testimony of all these life experiences and God engaging us with us in all of them. And so when the Bible does say God has directed and ordained our life, that God knows every hair on the, on, on our head, that is true. And when we see examples of people going and making their own mind up and doing their own things, in spite of the fact that it's going to destroy themselves and their families and their communities, God's letting us do that too. And that's part of this reality as well. So when we come to be with someone who's grieving, our natural desire is to want to um, provide them with reason, because if we have, have a reason for it, then we feel that we can understand it better. But if we're trying to impose that on someone who's grieving, um, it does the opposite of comforting. It can push them away. Um, And if I'm certain in my particular theological view and I'm asserting that for you, but you don't accept it because it's not bringing you comfort, it's really easy for me, the one intending to comfort, to say, well, then your faith is not correct. Mm. Your belief is incorrect. And so now what, what has happened is, the griever is not simply grieving, you've now made them a heretic, or you've made them at least uh, an insincere Christian. And so you've placed upon them, if they want to stay in relationship with you, which oftentimes they don't, you've now placed upon them the doubt of their own faith to go with their grief. Mm. And it's just a toxic compound. And I've known lots of people who have left their churches and communities of faith and even, um, 
I mean, Bart Ehrman, and, and I, I touch on this, his, as he describes um, how he became an agnostic, it was largely because he couldn't reconcile uh, the suffering that's in the world mm. with the view of, of, of a divine and, and loving God. Yeah, you touch on that in several places in the book, mm-hmm. um, which I appreciate because I think for those that we serve and those that might read the book, that is always, and that was one thing I really liked about the subtitle about a uh, Christian struggle with suffering, grief, and hope. Um, mm. Sort of the balance between that suffering and hope. It is um, a difficult thing for a lot of people to wrestle with, especially if they have a Christian background or Judeo-Christian background of, you know, who is, who am I in relationship to this God? Um, mm-hmm. and why that awful word, why? Well, right, yeah. right. Well, and I, I would like to go back because it's within the framework of this, this, this part of our conversation, but mm-hmm. to the title, yeah, because the title comes from a quote from Frederick Beekner, who is a, um, award-winning author and a Presbyterian minister, a theologian, I suppose you could call him. I, I, some are calling me a theologian now, and I'm very uncomfortable with that. And so are most theologians who know me. They're like, ah, eh, Brady's not exactly a theologian. <laughs> but Beekner has this quote, and I just a little backstory, which is, um, you know, I as dean of an honors college, I, I do graduation speeches three times a year. Yeah. And I try and make them relatively, it's like Christmas and Easter. It's going to be the same speech. I try and switch the base text up a little bit. And so I was Googling speeches and I came across this quote. I know some of knew some of Beekner at the time. I've since read almost everything he's written. And the line was, here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I thought, oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. It's a great explanation. This was before our son died. I started using it in speeches. And then as things progressed, I reflected on that phrase. I thought, yeah, this I it reflects the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if I'm going to use it for a title, I better find it in context. And uh, what's amusing to me is when I read the full context, which I'll share here, uh, I realized many of the people who I had seen quoting this in their commencement addresses would be horrified <laughs> because they are not people of faith uh, or and in the right. academic world often are actively against it. So this is, this is Beekner's quote. The grace of God means something like God speaking. Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. Now, in an early introduction that didn't make it, I said, just go meditate on that for three months and you don't need to read the book. I love that. Well, you know, that quote, cause I read it, I, I was like, it, it is, it is beautiful. Um, yeah. And it's so, it, you know, we could talk about grace for who knows how long, um, mm-hmm. but it's so hard. I think, especially as we're grieving to feel that connection, that, that how much we are loved mm-hmm. That all of this, yeah. you know, it's it is for a reason, but it's not the the in the box reason that you were talking about earlier. It's not as yeah. it's not as simplified and systematic as that. 
it's yeah. it's pretty where, where some of my friends can <clears throat> rightly charge me with semantics those who are more mm -hmm. uh, uh predestinarian and leaning uh in one of the later chapters um uh, and and i will accept that accusation but but the purpose finding the purpose and and there is a subtle distinction that i make that i think is really important for many of us mm. in grieving is you know the grace of god is the presence of god with us and while on the one hand i would assert god did not take mac from us for some reason no matter how many people this book helps and how many people that Elizabeth and I have been able to walk with through their own grief, mm -hmm. I, I can't see in any view of divine justice that, that, that Max's death would, would merit any of the positive that would come forth from that. So I don't believe that God, and I have strong theological foundation to say that God did not ordain that Max should die. But as we walk from that place, we can make choices mm. about how we walk and where we walk. And we can open up our hearts and our eyes and our ears to hear God's voice in those around us. And so that's where I think the purpose is found. It's not that God sent this calamity to us in order that we might go out and do these things, but rather having received this because it's part and parcel of this fallen and broken world yet god is within that fallen and broken world and as we move forward where is god with us in it and that's that's the grace that's the presence and being open to it now it doesn't mean everybody's called to do this in their grief right, um right. but we've been really blessed in the way that we've been able to be present with others yeah and that is a that's a gift for both sides um uh, because absolutely uh, Grief uh, needs to be witnessed. Um, mm -hmm. It it doesn't work well alone. Um, it is right. a place for us to connect with others, um, but mm -hmm. it ultimately is, you know, grief is hard and horrible as it can be, and such a strange state of being. Um, if we're if we're sitting with those feelings and that emotion. It can really be a place to uh, continue that love that someone has for their loved one. It's sort of the, the other side of love. One of the, the things that where I areas where I've grown and in, in both knowledge and experience has been in the, the nature of grief. Mm. And um, we're currently in the parish that I assist in going through the book as a, right, as a right. work, uh, as a study. And um, a couple of folks in our class, um, and it's one of those classes where nothing is recorded, even though it's all on Zoom, uh, and, and nothing is shared, but in the most general ways. And we actually talked about it in the last session about, about what can and can't share. Um, but a couple of folks uh, have, um, have children with severe um, mental health challenges, not mm. Uh, not diminishment, but rather personality issues, obsessive issues, and, and, and therefore abuse issues too. And um, they said in, in that community, there's a line, um, nobody ever brings casseroles to you when, when your child has had an event, shall mm -hmm. we say. Mm -hmm. And yet those people are grieving just as much and how prolonged it is. I mean, I remember 
so we live in State College, Pennsylvania. Um, Mac was at the hospital here, and they decided to life flight him by helicopter down to Hershey Medical Center, which is a, about a two and a half hour drive. And as we were driving down, um, on the one hand, it, it, Elizabeth and I was talking about it. She, she wouldn't mind my sharing this. It did not occur to her that Mac's life was in jeopardy. It did to me. And I said to her, um, and, there, and there's something at Penn State called THON. It's the Dance Marathon for Pediatric Cancer. Yeah. And, and um, the students here raise literally millions and millions of dollars a year for pediatric cancer. And so I've gotten to know through our students' engagement, the families of those children. And some of them, it's great. It, they're, they're able to receive the therapies and live. And right, right. I've had students who were THON children benefiting who are now dancing the 46 hour dance marathon and so forth. And so as we're driving down, I said to Elizabeth, um, if this should be it, at least we've had almost nothing but joy and energy with Mac. Because those Thon families, especially with a terminal diagnosis, they, they want every single last moment they could possibly have with their child. But they know that it may be their last moment, any moment. Uh, not long after, and I credit Elizabeth with this insight because um, somebody in the community reached out saying that their nephew was diagnosed with cancer and her sister was really struggling. And uh, did Elizabeth have any advice? And her advice was, you grieve, but don't mourn until they're gone. And I'm not sure semantically whether it, it whether, whether in terms of vocabulary, it's an exact distinction, but semantically in that context, the distinction is really important to recognize that we, we are grieving as we go through all, all these things, but especially when you've got, you know, a terminal situation, things like that, squeeze every moment you can, you're going to grieve, but also celebrate because there will be time enough to mourn. I mean, Jesus is something like that about the uh, when the bridegroom is gone. You'll, you've yeah. got plenty of time to fast later. Right now, I'm with you and celebrate while I'm here. Yeah. So. Well, that's one of the stories you bring up in the book, uh, Jesus uh, weeping with Lazarus. And there's so many good uh, uh, right. stories that you've pulled in from Job and Ruth. Um, I really appreciated that piece as well. Um mm -hmm. I think any time that we can put those stories around grief that are really grief stories um, in context um, with someone who's grieving, it's really very helpful and comforting um, to kind of see ourselves. So much uh, to me with the Bible, it's stories about us. And just because the names are hard to pronounce exactly. doesn't mean that that's not who we are. Um but I'm looking at your office there, and I think I see, is that Max uh, goalie glove in the background? It is. So we actually, well, it's not his, but we had some goalie gloves made. Mac was a soccer goaler, uh -huh. and uh, his team was the Celtics. So people, I often worry that people think it's all about good luck, but they <laughs> were the Celtics. So they had four-leaf clover, and he picked number seven. Now, as he grew up, he would have, as a goalie, he would have probably been, uh, you know, a number one or a number 99, right, something right, like that. Yeah. Seven is a midfield player. But uh, we've, yeah, one of the things we, again, it was in that night in the drive back, mm -hmm. Elizabeth and I talked about um, 
Elizabeth may have been the first person to bring up, how, how do we want to remember, memorialize Mac? And we decided we wanted to, A, we wanted to give an outlet for people um, beyond flowers. Um, we, B, we wanted it to be something celebratory. Like, so the life flight crew were, were great. And we thought about that for a moment. We're like, it, you know, um, it, the work they do is wonderful and they should be remembered, but we wanted to remember Mac and, and how to do that. And so we thought about soccer and Mac and I would go to see the, the men and the women play at Penn state all the time. Yeah, Coaches knew him well. And, and I knew the coaches and the athletic director because we recruited students to the university through honors. But so we decided, and I, this, this comes from being inside baseball, raising millions of dollars for the university. I knew how these gifts work. Sure, sure. And we decided we, we didn't want to create a scholarship um, because then athletics would just pull the money back, frankly. Uh, but we wanted to create something that would really have an impact. And so we created this fund. So there's the Mac Brady uh, Goalkeeper Fund. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, so on the one hand, and, and we've just been blown away because we're close to $300,000 that people have given over the years. Wow, that's um, and there are literally thousands and thousands of people who have given to that. Um, and, and the, this year has, has been atypical because seasons have been canceled, but the, the big 10 home opener is always dedicated to Mac. They have a, an amazing record. They've only lost one. Uh, it's like six, two and one or so, or six, one and one, I think is their record. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so that's, that's one part of it to, to really celebrate. So I encourage folks as, as they're going through their grief process to, to find moments and ways in which you can remember never forgetting, but finding a way to translate that into something joyous and positive. And then the other side, uh, right in the moment, it, the soccer community was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, we got letters and emails from goalie coaches and goalies themselves from the Major League Soccer, so professionals. Um, Tim Howard was the U.S. goalkeeper mm -hmm. at the time playing for Everton. We got a letter from Tim. Um, I'm sure somebody else wrote it, but that doesn't <laughs> matter. Still, it doesn't the matter. point was the community, right? Yeah. And our coach here, our, in fact, our, the, the, he's now back in, in Oklahoma, but Bob Warming, one of the, the winningest um, soccer coaches in NCAA history, his daughter had died in a car accident just nine months before. Audrey was her name. Uh, we should remember Audrey Warming. And so Bob and I formed a very close bond. But in the midst of it, um, Todd Hofford, he was goalie coach for uh, New York Red Bulls at the time, mm -hmm. happened to be the last coach to email me. And I responded, I said, well, thank you, but what, what are we supposed to do? You know, they're all saying, let us know if there's something we can do. Right, right. And I said, you know, you tell me, our keeper's gone. Max buddies aren't sure they want to play soccer ever again. What should we do? And he said, you know what? I know Coach Warming. Uh, I'm going to reach out. I think we should put together a clinic. And so two weeks after Mac died, the Sunday before the first day of classes, they had a soccer clinic. There were about 50, 60 little kids came. And because it was also Mac's birthday, we gave uh, an autographed ball, one to a boy, one to a girl for the men's and the women's team sure. to celebrate uh, Mac's, uh, Mac's birth and his life. And we've done that every year since. Again, not sure what we'll do this January, but Penn State soccer, we're now, uh, we have another coach, but who's equally committed to, to rejoicing in, in his memory. And what is really wonderful for us is the last several years, it's been over 150 little kids in January 
who come to this indoor workout facility on Penn State's campus. And the, the men's and the women's from Penn State soccer teams come and, and, and these kids are just like, oh my goodness, because these are rock stars to them. And that's a celebration. Yeah. And, um, you know, could we have tried to put it in research? There is a, the Rory Stoughton Foundation mm -hmm. for uh, sepsis. Their, their child died shortly after Mac did. Very similar circumstances, but he was older. Um, yeah, but for us, it was really we really wanted to celebrate in the positive, not, not memorialize the, the one thing that in 36 hours took him from us, mm. but rather the full life that, that he had. Well, you definitely get that from your book. Um, and that's, that's one of the stories. I'm so glad you shared that because I was like, Oh, we have to talk about the goalie uh, fund. Cause it's such a, yeah. just such a wonderful way to um, celebrate Mac and who he was and what he loved. Um, yeah. That's so great. And that's where I certainly saw the hope coming out of the book. I mean, besides the, the theological discussions around it, yeah. Um, yeah. the story, that story was just so hopeful. Yeah. And speaking of that. Well, and I think ahead. it's, it, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, you know, for me, it, it is the, the, the combination. The, the theology is of course, um, it's there. It, it, it ground, grounds us. And I say us, I mean, my family and I, but it is also, um, uh, but, but there's also living in this world. Right. And so it's this combination of things. Um, and, and so on the one hand, it is the hope and the joy. We look forward to that Mac Brady match. We look forward to the clinic. Um, but we look forward most of all to being reunited. We believe in the resurrection. Um, it, it caused me to reflect in a way that I, I had done in an academic way, but to come back and think in a more personal way, okay, what does this mean? And, and again, these, these questions of why for, for those within the Christian and the Jewish faith, uh, Orthodox and traditional Judaism does believe in the resurrection. It's Christianity comes straight out of that. Um, so how does it all work? Where does it, we, we want to know the mechanics. And again, the reality is the Bible doesn't give us the answers we want. It gives us the answers we need, I think. Mm -hmm. But the mechanics, what happens exactly when we die? Well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. The, Jesus didn't come back and say, let me tell you about the last three days. Wow. <laughs> Here's what I did. It was amazing. I, you know, I river sticks the whole nine years. No, I mean, we don't get any of that. But we get the promise and the assurance that we will be raised again. And, and Paul talks about this was the thing I really I don't know, it just hit me in a very different way. This idea that our resurrected bodies would be something so completely different mm. that, you know, no matter how beautiful and, and strong and healthy you are now, that's, that is like that little tiny seed or acorn that yields, you know, a couple hundred foot big tree, you know? So in that, that, that does bring me joy and reassurance. And I look forward to that. But I also need to live today mm -hmm. and be in this moment today. And so finding those daily moments. And, it, it, and again, it's, it's pushing back against the dichotomies, right? Yeah. So there are people who, who want to say, well, that's all candy floss. That's all cotton candy. It doesn't, it doesn't provide any sustenance. Well, some of us live more on that end of the spectrum. Some of us live more on this end of the spectrum. But it is a spectrum. There, it's not an either or. It's a both and. Mm -hmm. And some 
days I'm way over here and some days down there. Um, and, and it's a, it's a false dichotomy and a false theology or secular humanism that pushes one or the other away. Right. 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 I think we have to em- em- embrace it all. And that, that comes back to this weird Christian teaching in some cir- circles of you shouldn't grieve. If you're yeah. a Christian, you shouldn't grieve because we know that they, that they are raised in with Jesus. Well, no, of course we're not grieving for them, we're not sorry for where they are now. We're sorry for where we are. We're right. still here. Right. We're still stuck with this. Exactly. It's yeah. it's our grief. Exactly. You know, like it's our exactly. grief. We're the ones who are grieving yeah. Yeah. them not being present with us here. Yeah. And yeah. but it's yeah, it that's one of those things that you, you mentioned in the book that uh, frustrates me sometimes is that you know oh don't don't you shouldn't grieve you know that everything's better and they're in a better place and all those things and I'm like. I, it's about my grief, my missing them, you know, our missing our loved exactly. ones. Exactly. And, and I'm sure you know, knew this book before I mentioned it, but that little book, it's actually part of a larger volume, but nobody knows the larger volume from Granger Westberg, Good Grief. Mm-hmm. Just a, a beautiful little book that talks about the fact. And that was, that was the one that really opened up for me, this recognition that we grieve divorce. We grieve job change. I realize now that my freshman year in college into sophomore year were so poignant because mm-hmm. I had gone in believing I was chemistry pre-med. I was going to be a rich physician and I, and I was on the swim team. I, I had had scholar, swimming scholarships from a number of universities. That was my identity. That was my core. And then it was gone within about six weeks. I realized I can't do that. Either one of them. I mean, the swimming I could still physically do. I just got tired of it. And I realize now that what I spent the next two years doing was grieving for the loss of that identity. That person died, was gone. And I, and I now needed to allow a new person to be born. And, and so we, we grieve this on many levels. And that has really come in to help me with my students, mm-hmm. as students to go through the same process I did. Um, but now at least I can help them a little bit to say, you know, those dreams were, were great and were valid, but, and it's, but it's also okay to, to let them go. They help shape you to bring you where you are now, but it's not like it's a dead end. There's just a, there's just a new, there's a new pathway in front of you. You're going to continue to build. Um, and so anyway, so that was part of that little book. So I, I always encourage folks to, to pick that one up too. Yeah. Good grief is a good book and it's, yeah. I like it too, cause it's small and it's easy to, to share. So, right. And I'm, I'm hopeful um, as we get ready to host your uh, book as our November, December book selection, um, that we'll be able to share your stories you. um, with those in our community and uh, yours as well. So thank you for uh, talking today. Thank you for writing the book. I think it's a, a really good uh, look at grief and um, and from your perspective, uh, I, I do appreciate that you know coming from a scholar of lamentations that that uh, you too uh, you know <laughs> had challenges with grief and uh, things around that. So yeah. I appreciate that. Well, um, Christian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and I'm so looking forward to talking more about your book soon. Thank you so much. And it's what an honor to have been chosen. And I, and I do hope that it just brings some comfort to those in need. The Faith and Grief podcast is supported by listeners like you. Donate today at faithandgrief.org.